I had a wardrobe choice this morning. You had a wardrobe choice? Yeah. Of like which shirt to wear? Based on being on the podcast? Based on being on the podcast. I had two choices. And you went with the other podcast? I went. <laughs> it was comical. Mm. Like, because those were the top two shirts. Physically I, in the pile? Or do you I, mean uh, the most popular? Uh, physically in the pile. Okay. <laughs> like I opened my drawer where I keep t-shirts and top one was the bike shed shirt. Mm-hmm. And then just underneath it was wow. giant robots. And I was like, well... Know what I'm going to be wearing. And you made an interesting choice. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by Matt Sumner, development director here in our Boston office. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm full of coffee. Mm. and ready to go and you're drinking more as we speak so this episode might get increasingly fast paced as Mm -hmm. we go yep thanks for uh for joining us once again i've had you on a few times yeah this will be time number three time number three and i do i feel it is my duty Mm -hmm. i'm honor bound to round out the conversation that has spanned between the first two episodes which was cryptocurrency oh my Uh, (laughs) is it a fraud or is it a, a platform on which to invest all of your monies Drum roll, please. So I still own zero crypto. Okay. That is a statement of fact, mm-hmm. not my opinion. <laughs> not anyone's opinion. Even. Right? It is truly just a fact that floats out there. Yep. So shortly after we recorded our last episodes together, I was speaking fondly about our plans mm-hmm. to launch the Ethereum Alpha client mm-hmm. in the new year. So shortly after that, the value of Ethereum continued its downward trend. I think broadly, all the cryptos sort of moved together as well. This wasn't strictly Ethereum. This was across the board. board. Yeah. Yeah. There was some massive sell-off or I don't know how markets work, but one of those market things happened. Right. And so the POA network, who was great to work with, decided that it was time to take a step back from using consultants (laughs) for the time being. And so the week after Thanksgiving, we... um, sort of gracefully rolled off the project. Mm-hmm. Very graceful, yes. Yep. Which is unfortunate that it did have to happen like uh, so close to a launch and things like that. I think you had gotten it to a very good place, but hadn't quite crossed that milestone, the finish line sort right. of thing. So that was a little bit unfortunate. It was, although we did feel confident in the team mm-hmm. that was set up and ready to keep moving things forward. Mm-hmm. I haven't checked in recently, but they were making good progress just before Christmas. So I should I should check in now because yeah. they should be getting close to releasing something. Yes, very exciting. So I guess you probably don't feel confident making a full statement about the state of crypto, but oh, it was an um, interesting arc that your time. It was a very fun project to work on. Like I can see why there is a lot of engineering time going into cryptocurrencies in general. The nature of like having a test suite that everyone is running against and Mm. just trying to like basically solve a computer science problem is not something i usually get to do no it's sort of the opposite of what we do right like i'm i'm usually just trying to convince people not to build any software yep Uh, and welcome back to that yeah and so this this was a ton of fun and it was measurable and it had a you know momentum and all of those lovely words Mm. and i could just like go into a cave and code and code and code and it was great but but (laughs) i'm not convinced that it's super useful (laughs) 
I'm still intrigued. Are we going to find that use case out there? It like so many people are so convinced of it, but yeah, I similarly have yet to see the thing that just conv- there was a weird thing about romaine lettuce and using the blockchain to encode romaine lettuce because there was the E. coli. I think that was what it was. Mm-hmm. Outbreaks and they were tracked back to romaine lettuce. And if only right. we had an indelible ledger of everywhere that everything had been. And at some point, there was an article talking about using the blockchain to encode this. Mm -hmm. But basically, they were just saying they wanted a database with the information as to where the lettuce had come from. Right. And it didn't need to be the blockchain. Like The blockchain wasn't the fundamental, unique way that we could solve that problem. Right. But the thing the blockchain gives you is that sort of like distributed network of trust, I guess. The best sort of attitude that I've heard someone express towards the blockchain is that the way they want to think about it is an implementation detail. Like, if they ever want to store anything in the blockchain, it's just like, okay, we'll just store it in the blockchain, and I don't need to care about how the blockchain works or what is happening or what is going on. But if there's a need for me to be storing something in a ledger somewhere so that it gets distributed through this network and lives essentially forever, Mm -hmm. then I would like to pay the money that I need to pay to make that happen and then never think about it again. That description does sound nice and useful. Mm -hmm. And particularly some of the things when I had Herman on a while back now, he was talking about um, like voting and using it as a mechanism for that, particularly in countries Mm -hmm. where there's less centralized trust. And Mm -hmm. so having a decentralized system with sort of a network of trust that we can build up and use that to provide a mechanism for voting and for democratic sort of elections. That was intriguing. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how much that's actually come to bear in the world, but... Yeah, I, I remain, like, each time an article flows past, I'm like, huh, I should read that. And then I read a little bit of it, and then I keep going on. But yeah, it was, again, I just felt it was necessary that we round out your arc totally, <laughs> now totally. that you're back here on the bike shed. But to transition over, you are now on a new project that I think has a bunch of different facets to it that sort of map to sort of the story of ThoughtBot all mm-hmm. in one. Like, you've only been on it for a few weeks, and yet we've covered so many things. <laughs> so I want to dig into a few of those things and ask you about some of it, because a lot of it is actually less familiar to me as well. Right. So particularly, you started this project with a design sprint. Mm. So can you talk a little bit about that, what that means, what that process looks like, your experiences within that? Yeah, so for anyone who's not aware or who hasn't seen sort of the stuff we have in our playbook around design sprints, a design sprint is a week-long exercise to try and tease out exactly what it is that we're trying to build. And the goal of the design sprint is to de-risk as much as possible. And you do that by testing your assumptions and uh, making sure you understand what the problem space is and ensuring that there is a need Mm -hmm. for the products that you're trying to build. And so when you say de-risk there, you're talking about the risk of building a lot of software, essentially spending a lot of money, mm-hmm. building something that doesn't necessarily have people out there that want it, that right. will pay for it, that will be interested in it or get use out of it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And there's also a risk that you are close to the mark, but you end up building the wrong thing. Hmm. Like you focus too much on something that is a problem, but isn't the primary concern of most users. Mm-hmm. And it's loosely split up into five phases, which match to the five days of the week that you'd typically do your sprint across. We had a unique situation where we started the sprint on a Tuesday because Monday was a a federal holiday. Mm. And so it bled over into the following Monday. And that will get to that because that had an interesting effect on Mm -hmm. the sprint as a whole. But the first day is the understand phase. And that's where um, your team all get together in one room and you gain a common understanding of what the problem is that you're trying to solve. 
and why it needs to be solved and why it hasn't been solved yet. So that's the goal of the understand. It's a lot of like going through sort of homework that people have done or market research and stuff like that. The second day is your diverge day. And the designer on the project, Eric, who is excellent and wonderful, described to me the diverge day as the saddest of all the days, which I was fascinated by. The association of an emotion with any of the days is interesting to me. So now, yeah, yeah. tell me more. I think maybe he didn't say saddest. I think he may have used the words, you'll end the day feeling a bit dejected. And that's the nature of Diverge. The right. idea is that you're you're trying to get everything out there, like mm-hmm. a really creative process, trying to just go in all sorts of crazy directions. And at the end of the day, you have no idea what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there's a lot of, you may end the day feeling a bit stressed and nervous, like, oh, gosh, how are we ever going to build something out of this, like, behemoth? This- sort of by definition, you have now too many options, too many different directions that you could go in, a lack of clarity. But that's by design, and then immediately, hopefully, (laughs) rectified by the following day. Right. The following day is converge. So you you understand, you diverge, and then you converge. And that's where the group as a whole has to come together and choose the sort of one true path that they're going to follow for building the prototype. And the converge day is kind of filled with exercises designed to sort of get everybody in agreement on a single path forward. And so there's a lot of sort of putting everything up on the board and then, okay, what can we immediately tear down? Like, let's get this down to the bare minimum and converge as a group as to exactly what is 100% necessary. And that was an incredible process. Like, you know, going from that, like feeling slightly dejected about knowing about diverging across the whole of the universe and then coming down to this, like, this is exactly the thing that we are going to build you go from the beginning of the day feeling quite nervous that you're not going to get there. And then by the end of the day, it's like, oh, my, this is incredible. We're going to build. <laughs> this is going to be a great thing. The fourth day is then building the prototype. So that's for our sprint. We did that entirely in Envision. That sounds pretty common, although I think there's occasionally been HTML and CSS mockups. Yep. But a lot of Envision, clickable prototype sort of things, mm-hmm. but not necessarily beyond that. I think this ends up happening on a lot of design sprints is that the prototype generally falls to one person. It doesn't tend to be an exercise that goes well with like pairing or mm. any of those tools where you can have more group involvement. But by that point, you have like a good understanding of what the prototype is going to be. And so, again, Eric basically took that upon his shoulders, mm-hmm. started building out the prototype. And Alex and I, uh, Alex is a developer here on iOS mobile he does all the things. He does. <laughs> I think more Android is his specialty, but he's now, he's done plenty of React Native and he's now on the iOS side. Yeah. So working across all things mobile. So he is our iOS developer on the team. So myself and he sort of ran through some tech decisions that we could make mm-hmm. based on what we'd learned so far and sort of started having those conversations on the prototyping day. And I think that tends to be the case with design sprints uh, here at ThoughtBot is that if there tends to be a split between designers like working on the prototype and developers maybe getting a head start on some of the more infrastructure stuff. Right. And so I'd be curious to have conversations with more of the team to understand if that's something that should change. Because the one thing I wanted to make sure we were doing is fully supporting Eric in all of the sort of things that he was taking on. Mm-hmm. I think there's also the the caveat that Eric was then building out a prototype, which was then for the fifth day used in user testing. So actually right. bringing that, putting that in front of users and saying, 
is this intuitive? Is this clear? How do you respond to this? And it's possible that that would lead to not pursuing that direction or needing to vary it or change it or or pivot in some way. Mm -hmm. So there is the interesting bit of like starting to code when you're pretty sure of like when everyone on the team has come together, but you haven't put it in front of users yet. But for now, it does seem like that makes sense to Mm -hmm. do, but also it would be ideal if it could only start after the user interview portion. Right. And I know in the past, there have been several rounds of design sprints. So you do a design sprint, you end up with the prototype, you do user testing, and it's a it's a flop. Mm-hmm. Like users don't like it, they don't want to use it, you've gone down the wrong direction. At which point you need to regroup as a team and do it again. Yep. This time follow a different tact. I've even heard of cases where we do a second round of prototyping, not necessarily because we need to fully reset, but just to refine Mm -hmm. the, like, we got some interesting feedback and we think we're mostly in the right place, but there was enough confusion around this part or this flow through the prototype. And the value, I think, is in the, by using tools like Envision or other things, we're not actually building software, which tends to cost a bunch of money and take a lot of time. We can iterate more quickly and then get that feedback. And ideally, the design sprint is almost... It's a scaled-down version of what we should be doing throughout the entire lifespan of a project. Like, Mm -hmm. keep rethinking these sort of things. Maybe not the entirety of the diverge and converge phases, Mm -hmm. but the prototype, asking for feedback, et cetera. The more that we can do that throughout the lifespan of a product, the better, because then we don't necessarily build software that people won't use. We don't necessarily build features that are of questionable utility and whatnot. I really approved of some of the tools we used to come to conclusions after we had done user testing. So we use this thing called an assumptions board mm-hmm. where we have sort of a list of our assumptions that we think are high risk and then how we are going to test it and what a successful test result looks like. Mm-hmm. And you define all of that before building the prototype. And so when you're building the prototype, you have this lens of like, here are the assumptions that we're trying to test with this prototype And when we get to user testing, we know what a positive result looks like. Mm -hmm. For some of those things, you're going to get the answer by running through the prototype and then asking a question at the end. And we intentionally had defined those questions before building the prototype. Mm -hmm. That all makes sense. There's an interesting aspect that I've heard about the assumptions gathering phase and that part of that, it isn't that we know what the assumptions are and then we just write them on the board and say Mm -hmm. these are the high risk ones. It's something that as part of the natural conversation that's going on, individuals are trying to say, well, actually, you just said that as if it's a fact, but I think that might be more of an assumption. That's, right. We probably should validate that. Mm-hmm. And that it's so easy to go forward with the things that we, we definitively know, mm-hmm. quote unquote. But when someone else is like, oh, I'm not sure about that. And they're like, oh, I guess I, I don't know why I feel that so strongly. Maybe we should validate that. Yeah. One of the other things that was quite interesting with, uh, I mentioned earlier that we split so that our user testing day was not on Friday, it was on the following Monday. And what ended up happening is that we lined up five user testers in person, which is our typical process, Mm -hmm. on the assumption that two will cancel. Because that inevitably happens. Right. So we lined this all up, and what ended up happening was four canceled. Ooh. (laughs) So we had one user test on the Monday. We managed to scramble and get a second user test and reschedule a third for the Tuesday But we made the decision to open up user testing remotely. And the interesting thing that came of that is we ended up user testing for the entire week. So Alex and I 
continued pushing forward on some of the tech infrastructure stuff. Mm -hmm. But the business owner and Eric were user testing all week. And that actually ended up being fantastic mm. because they kept iterating on the prototype. They kept changing. As we clarified our assumptions, there were more that came up. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up being able to come out of this week with a really good sense of what's going to work and what we should be building. I feel like I've also heard us talk about doing that sort of process, like an extended prototype sequence just as part of the design sprint thing. Like one day of prototype test sequence might even be too short. Mm -hmm. And like the first three days seem like they fit reasonably well, but then wanting to get a, a few more cycles in at the end certainly makes sense. And again, my, my thinking, I think largely is to keep that iterative process going. Right. But there's a certain particularly interesting version of it if you can front load it. Mm -hmm. Like we went from waterfall to agile, Yes. But it does turn out that it's probably a good idea to like point the ship in the right direction in a pretty serious way to start the voyage. Mm -hmm. And then lots of micro optimizations along the way and little turns and adjustments and things like that. But you do want to like, are we building a mobile app? Are we building a web app? Are right. we building a thing for this audience or for this audience? Are we, do people even care? Like having that big set of questions answered. Answered is maybe even too strong of a word, but de-risking I think was the way that you described it. And I really like that as a frame for the whole, the whole process. So yeah, I felt great doing the design sprints and the results of the design sprint. One of the interesting questions that Alex and I discussed were these tech decisions that we needed to make mm -hmm. around what technologies would we be using to build this. And the reason that was interesting is we, we already had some constraints that we knew. We knew that this was going to be a mobile app. We knew that it would be iOS only for now. And we knew that given that constraint, we knew we would build that in Swift. But then we also knew there would be a server component. And we had some preferences around how to build that server component. We've been uh, using GraphQL a lot mm -hmm. throughout the company and have been enjoying that tremendously. It seems like it's increasingly becoming our default option when we are building an API if we are in charge of that decision, or as much as we can be in charge of that decision, that seems like we are consolidating on that being a default, which yes. is good, I think. I'm certainly a fan. Yes. So I've enjoyed that. But once we had made that decision, there is the choice of moving away from doing that with Ruby and Rails mm -hmm. and using something that sort of meshes more easily with the strong types in GraphQL. Right. Or at least the types. Types, yeah. any, any type. I mean, there are yeah. types in Ruby. They just, they're a little more wiggly. Right. My experience of using the GraphQL gem has been very pleasant, mm -hmm. but it's definitely one of those interface layers where there's not a lot that can be done for me. I need mm -hmm. to explicitly declare like, this is X, this is Y, and there's nothing that's going to correct me if I'm wrong. Or if I right. make a change, it's difficult for it to be caught mm -hmm. until that's out in production or you start hitting the GraphQL endpoint. It's one of those interesting things where as you start to spend more time with technology that gives you that sort of feedback, like as I'm typing into the editor, depending on the language at hand, the editor is giving me feedback the whole time, particularly mm -hmm. in, say, JavaScript of late with ESLint and TypeScript and things like that. As I'm typing, it's keeping me honest and telling me some some hard truths. And then I'll transition back to Ruby. And it's that, like, I didn't feel as loose before. Mm -hmm. But then I go 
to a world that has more of those constraints and compilers and things like that. And suddenly I look at it, I'm like, there are just symbols and strings everywhere. Yeah. There's a lot of trust in this system. And ideally we have tests and we've built up ways to work in that ecosystem that I think have been very effective. But like particularly with this, all of the, yeah, get this property off the object and that's a symbol that you're passing. Right. Let's hope that that object responds to that method yep. and that things work and whatnot. So I am, I'm very intrigued by something that, that matches a little bit better. And there's the other aspect of the reference implementation is in JavaScript for GraphQL. Mm-hmm. And it uses functions, like anonymous functions all around. And Ruby just doesn't, it doesn't quite match that world. Right. It's a little bit different of a thing. And it just feels a bit like a force fit. Mm-hmm. It's totally doable. And again, I've had a very positive experience working with it. But I'm intrigued by the other options. So. Yes. Before we dive into the other options, I did want to mention that I've also used the GraphQL Pro Ruby gem mm-hmm. and would thoroughly recommend it if anyone is, you know, building a serious application with GraphQL and Ruby on the back end. What does that provide in addition? So it gives you some additional sort of functionality on top of what comes in the sort of free open mm-hmm. source version. The things it gives you is like a great integration with Pundit or um, Can Can Can. Which are both authorization layers. Exactly. So it gives you some great functionality around that so that you can make sense of your authorization Mm -hmm. within your application. It also gives you access to the channels. I don't know what that's using under the hood. Maybe Action Cable. I'm not entirely sure. but Oh, for like WebSockets and for subscription type things? Yeah. It may be using, it may give you a couple of options, but it it basically allows you to easily implement the channel stuff. Hmm so that you can have those WebSockets open in your Rails app. That makes sense. I do find the business model of things like GraphQL Pro or Sidekick Pro is the other one that I can think of, mm-hmm. where it's there's a very fully featured entry point, but when you start needing the more interesting features, when you start using it in more of like an enterprise or large-scale mm-hmm. way that you then have the option of paying for more of it and getting a little bit of support and a little bit of additional features, I'm intrigued. Just the general idea of how do we pay for this open source thing? Because right. it's real. It's it's very important to us. And yeah, I, I like that model. I mm-hmm. think it seems to be working well, at least in those two cases that I've seen. Yes. So I think that's a positive as well. So on a project immediately preceding this one, I pushed to get GraphQL Pro on that. And mm-hmm. it was a great decision because mm-hmm. it just saved us a ton of time just on the pundit side, because we would have had to implement that sort of wiring up ourselves and had to have come up with some conventions on our own. Right. And there was nothing about it that you couldn't do without the pro version, but it made a lot of things easier, had built-in integrations and things like that. Exactly. Which I I like that line for if we're going to have a pro version, Mm -hmm. let's make sure we're not hiding critical functionality in there. Right. Because it is costly for, say, an individual that we're using this on like a side project. That's It's not really right. reasonable. But for an organization that's using this to build a large software application, like it's a, sort of a no-brainer. Right. Yeah, so you, uh, you then were faced with the decision of what to go with. So I've been on two data-heavy projects that were both using Scala. And so I have some experience with that. Mm-hmm. So it was really a choice between doing this in Rails and doing it in Scala. And faced with that decision, I really liked the idea of using Scala because it has a type system and there's a sort of promise there of everything flowing through and being lovely and having a compiler. But I hadn't actually experienced that. Mm -hmm. I've never gone through the process of building like a a GraphQL web server in Scala. So specifically that aspect of the technical choice had some associated risk in your mind. Exactly. We had a very interesting conversation about this where you were basically balancing the two sides of, we could certainly do this in Rails, we could move very quickly, we could get there, but 
there is this dream of robustness. Yeah, it was an interesting conversation how you were weighing those two options. Right. Yeah, because I think that the initial ramp up is going to be slower because there are like very basic conventions that I'm used to having Mm -hmm. or questions already answered for me in Rails. Like I I know how to set up like login and sign up and that kind of thing in Rails. And I I don't have that experience in Scala. I know sort of security concerns or getting this up on Heroku and all of those sorts of things. But the thing that I'm kind of excited about is once you get past all of that boilerplate wiring up stuff, I do believe that we'll be able to move faster once we get into like this is the core of the application code, having those types running throughout my system, I'm going to be able to pivot more easily. I'm going to have more confidence making changes than I would in a Rails app. It does feel like it is fundamentally a better fit because Scala has more of a functional approach. It's similar to Ruby, it is a, a hybrid functional object-oriented language, mm-hmm. but the functions as first-class things and the sort of operations that are needed in a GraphQL context, it, it does a little bit better at those. And then the type system also being incredibly powerful and being able to express some of the complex things. It's a wonderful dream, and I think it's one worth pursuing. Yes. So it's it's an interesting question. Like We use de-risking, talking about the design sprint process, but mm-hmm. there's a similar then technological risk here. And I've used the phrase risk budget a few times on the Mm -hmm. podcast, and I like that idea of we do have a little bit of room to move. Like, you know enough of the rest of that. You've spent enough time with Scala and felt the benefits of that, that you believe it provides an interesting foundation. Mm -hmm. And we can imagine into a future where it's going to actually be really beneficial. Right. But we're going to take a little bit of a a risk there and hope that it pays off. Assume that it won't go terribly. That's the thing. It's like, I I think we were pretty confident. This won't be awful. People are definitely building production applications using Scala and GraphQL. Mm -hmm. That's definitely true. Sangria is the implementation, the server library that you're using there. And it is robust and I think well used, although I'm interested to hear after your little bit of implementation how things are going thus far. It has been interesting because Sangria lives in a world where its default sort of web server of choice is uh, something called Play. And Play is dull. Dull? Dull. D-U-L-L dull? Yeah. Okay. Like That's such a fun sentence that you have said now. (laughs) I don't want to say it's bad or that it's wrong, Mm -hmm. but I'm not excited by it. Is Rails exciting to you? Rails was exciting to me. I mean, I kind of think of Rails as dull wouldn't necessarily be the word I would use, but boring is a word that often mm-hmm. I use to describe it. Yeah. And that like, but I like that boring. That's mm-hmm. a boring that I want. Right. It's right. known, it's stable. It's a, yeah, it's not fresh and shiny, but. I don't think this is the same. Okay. I think in uh, the Ruby world, there isn't competition for Rails. Mm-hmm. There are no competing frameworks, really. Mm-hmm. that are going to take over Rails. Yeah, there was Merb, and then Rails right. gobbled up Merb, and then yeah. there wasn't a Merb. Exactly. It's not clear to me that that's the case in the Scala world. Hmm. So Play is a framework that has like both Scala and Java interfaces. Right. So you can also be writing Java apps using Play. And it means that it's a little bit more DSL-y than I would like. Okay. And there's cases where the type system isn't doing all that it could for you. And Sangria is sort of built with a similar mindset. And so shortly after getting started, diving into this, getting wired up, I um, sorted out all my types and I had HTTP4S. I've since learned that the 4S at the end of library names is for Scala. For Scala, yeah. Yeah. Who knew? (laughs) (laughs) Using that for our sort of HTTP layer. Instead of play. Instead of play. Right. We're using Doobie. 
is a library for integrating with Postgres. And that has a similar nice type safe situation going on. It actually has a very interesting approach for getting like typed SQL statements, hmm. which is to not try and marry SQL and your types. So all of your queries that you write, you write in pure SQL. And you say, Scala, I promise that the type that comes out of this is this type, which I can see you're concerned about. Yeah, listeners on the web, I just <laughs> tilted my head very uh, quizzically at Matt as right. he said these words. Because so. it sounds crazy. It sounds like not what you want. It sounds like the opposite of what we're going for here. Right. But, but, but <laughs> it also gives you a nifty little test called check. And you throw your SQL into the check statement and it will run a ton of stuff <laughs> against your schema and tell you if it's valid. And not only tell you if it's valid, but tell you if it matches the type that you promised Scala it would. Now that, you said test there. Yes. So this is not part of the normal compilation. This is a separate part of your test suite. Exactly. Okay. And so it's a really low lift, like mm -hmm. adding that to your right. project. Like, uh, okay, I'm gonna write out some Scala. I'm gonna say like, if I select star from users, I'm going to get out a user. And a user has these fields. Exactly. And the compiler will be like, great, you told me that's what it is. You now have a user. And then you throw in this test and mm. the test will run and be like, there's no users table. Hmm. This will never work. So you add a users table. And it goes, oh, you said the first name is an option, but you've put first name as um, not nullable. So it's never going to be none. Like you can remove that. Oh, interesting. And it will do the opposite. So it said, oh, you said this is definitely going to be a string, but it's nullable. And does this work through the complexity of things like joins and more complex, like yeah, it has a robust it, it understanding a, of SQL? Everything we've thrown at it. We've done <laughs> upserts using Doobie. Oh, okay. we've, we've done all sorts of... I guess upserts not actually that fancy of a thing, but it's just, right. we, it took us so long to get it in Rails land. I don't even right. know. Do we have proper support in Rails for upsert uh, at this point? I think we might. We'll come back to that. Okay. You'll you'll put a note in the show notes. I sure will. Oh. <laughs> hey, future me, how you doing? Uh, I'm going to keep making show notes promises now. That's fair. This uh, is the power you have as the guest. Exactly. But we've also done some really nice things that we can't do with Rails, like use uh, Postgres enums. Mm, I like and that. Like, yeah. And so there's actually a lot of power there to sort of use more of your database. Right. It is interesting to me to see a case where... We really wanted this thing. We wanted it to work in a certain way, and we kept trying to make it work in that certain way. But turns out it doesn't. There's just a mismatch there. And if we step back and we take, like, what if we were to do it this slightly different way? Mm. It's not perfect. Like, you lose the rapid feedback. Like, that feedback loop is now much longer. Right. But it's still closed. It's still mm -hmm. a nicely closed, and I think it sounds like a more completely closed feedback loop right. than would be feasible if we were actually trying to do this as part of compilation. So I find that trade-off really interesting. I didn't know that that was how Doobie worked, although I have seen a few pull requests come through with Doobie in it, with Doobie on the project. Yeah. Doobie's a fun word to say. And... I've seen raw SQL in there, raw SQL strings, and I'm like, what are, What all are we doing? So yeah. I'm glad to now understand what's going on there. Yep, those are just strings, and the compiler is checking nothing. Mm. But I think it's a great way to handle an interface. Mm -hmm. I've seen the other way. We've used uh, libraries in the past where you've had to like construct a strongly typed string mm -hmm. that gives you some guarantees yep. that the, the SQL that you're typing is valid and is going to produce the types that you need. Mm -hmm. But it's very difficult to use. Like, yes. Because you have like this additional layers of abstraction that you need right. to be aware of. 
Yeah, I think the what you just said there about like as we're crossing the boundary, that this is a, a probably a good way to go about this mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense to me. And it, it's it sounds similar to then on the client side, in this case the client being an iOS app, there's going to be some type generation reflecting yeah. off of the schema that then creates the necessary Swift classes, objects, I don't know, Swift. Mm-hmm. So whatever it is that they put their code in, in right. Swift land, but the same sort of thing exists in TypeScript or for any of the other strongly typed front end things where we're not necessarily trying to do this magically at compile time. We're doing some generation of code is, is right. a different way, but it's a similar mm-hmm. sort of, we can't do this completely, but what yes. if we were to just generate the code and have that generation maybe be built into the CI step? So that sounds interesting. So you've yeah. now you've got types coming from the database into your Scala layer. Yep. You've got HP4S at the top layer, which is fine because Play also has a lot of templating and things like that, which you're right. building an API and you don't need. So. Yeah. And then like right right in the core is using Sangria. Mm-hmm. And one of the promises from this was that the compiler was going to check all of these things for me and I, that I was going to get out something. Once it compiles, I would be confident mm-hmm. that I have something that works. And for my first pass, I did. Okay. I compiled, everything worked. I was like, this is the dream. This is exactly what I've been looking for. And then I decided to make a change to the mutation that I just built. Mm -hmm. I had built out a mutation and my mutation returned a user. So it was the register mutation Mm -hmm. and register returned a user. And I thought about it a bit more and I was like, well, actually, I want to be able to return a user and a token Mm. so that you can continue to be logged in after you'd registered. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to make my mutation return a single object. That object will have the two fields, user and token. And I wired that all up. Like I made a case class, wired it all in. I said it's a user and a token. And it said, great, it's compiled. I was like, great, I'm going to open a pull request. Opened a pull request, got it merged and immediately tried it and it didn't didn't work mm. and i hadn't wired up the resolve step of the mutation so during the resolve step of the mutation it's pulling out the context that you're in mm-hmm. and then isn't that where you actually do the work of the mutation right yeah you just hadn't written <laughs> so the part I just that does i the mean thing? I, my, my brain switched off i got sure. i got like, like a I compiler got the types and, and oh yeah. yeah i got a compiler and i was like mm, like <laughs> I just, <laughs> just turned into a zombie. Which, again, is the dream. Right. That is what like, we're going for with that to a certain degree. But yep, turns out there were lies in this there uh, compiler. No, entirely entirely my fault. I, I had an assumption, and it was not right. You've got to um, write it on the board, and then we've got to validate it. And, uh-huh. uh, and so got through the resolve step, and then it was like, oh, yeah, the argument that I'm expecting has changed and doesn't work anymore. Hmm. And it was a runtime error. Not a runtime error. Yeah. Hate those. So that was sad. And so what I did was fix it. Sure. And seems like an obvious first step. I thought about writing a test mm-hmm. because I was like, this is the one, the one bit of the system that I now don't have confidence in. Mm-hmm. And I thought about writing a test and I was pairing with uh, Mr. Joe Ferris. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, well, the next thing I want to do is write a test to cover this. And he said, well, you could. But you've changed from having just this singular type going in as the arguments and this singular object coming out into your resolve. And that's the only bit that is not type checked. Everything else is wired up. So if you make any changes to those two types now, the compiler will catch it. Okay. In a GraphQL world, that's the sort of best practice. Mm-hmm. You have your one object going in and your one object going out, and they are constants in that mm-hmm. they exist. 
<laughs> but you can add and deprecate attributes of those two objects. Yep. And all of that is type checked. The one thing that isn't type checked is that the arguments object going in exists on the other side when you're coming out. Okay. But once you get to that point, you're back in a strongly typed system. So what I didn't write a test. <laughs> so you didn't write a test. Were you able to get additional compiler coverage over that? or No, not around that thing. So and there's just now a known gap. There is a known gap. Okay. But I do wonder if there's something else I could be doing to get that known coverage. Because hmm. what I'm doing at the moment is the resolve function in Sangria. You get out the argument that it's passing in is an object that has context on it. Mm -hmm. And that context is the thing that isn't being type checked. When mm. I call like dot args and grab the argument type, it won't fail at compile time if that doesn't wire up. It will mm. fail at runtime. We've got to get it to compile time. <laughs> we just have to. Yes, I agree. And I don't know if it's something that's just missing from mm -hmm. Sangria or if it's something missing from the way I've wired it up. Right. Yeah, so more investigation to follow. Yes. Broadly speaking, though, at this point, having gone through that adventure, how are you feeling with the architecture and the foundation of the system that you that's, have and ability to move forward? That's a really good question. So at the end of this week, I have it up on Heroku mm -hmm. running. It has migrations. It has all of the things that I'm used to having. And it works now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Happy fixed it. Yep. Yeah. After covering that gap, I'm feeling a lot more confident than I was day one. So okay. you had to diverge first yes. on the technology. Now you converged. Exactly. You've got a small gap of yep. missing uh, type coverage. but Part of this project includes creating PDFs, which in the past I've done in Ruby and has yep. been a nightmare and I've not enjoyed it. And I was like, oh, no, maybe I should look and see if there's, there's Java libraries. Yeah, something tells me Java <laughs> has got this one covered. There's just so much, like... That spoiled for choice. Like, I think it's going to be fine. Oh, yeah. I, that is an interesting thing. Like, moving to Scala also means that you're moving to Java. You have access to essentially the entirety of that ecosystem. And, yeah, they've got a library for the thing. Like, I yeah. remember you and I were on a project together where it was in the big data space, big-ish, larger data, awkward data, as Joe calls <laughs> it. And we needed a streaming JSON parser. Those aren't a thing, really, in the Ruby land. It was just like, yeah, just parse the JSON objects. Like, no, it's a really, really big one, though. <laughs> it's like giant. We're going to run out of memory. And we ended up having to cobble one together. There were yeah. parts. There was essentially a toolkit that we found that mm -hmm. was the pieces. But then you have to write your own JSON parser that says, okay, when I see a right brace, then I close the object. And I know the shape of this thing. But yeah, in Java, there's oh a handful <laughs> of them. We would not have had to write that code on our own. So it is interesting trade-offs. That said... Some of the other things like background jobs integrated mm. into the work that you're doing. When and right. if that comes up, you're probably going to have a little more work to do than you would in the Rails context. I mean, there's also other things like if we're considering adding some sort of interface for the clients to be able to manipulate data, we would use a tool like Administrate or mm. something like that. I don't even know what to reach for Ooh, yeah. in this new world when presented with that problem. PHP, my admin? <laughs> I don't... <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's an interesting one. And the trade-off, just the inherent optimization game that we're playing here. And I was a proponent of you choosing Scala mm -hmm. uh, for this. I think this felt like a very safe place to experiment with this and that it has a lot of potential upside. So it wasn't just us wanting to try out a new technology for us right. wanting to, based on what we understand about the potential path forward for this project and the platform that in theory exists down the road for it. GraphQL is a strong foundation, and Scala with types and all of those things will be beneficial, will be yes. very beneficial. 
But it is always interesting making these bets and jumping to new things and trying to also minimize that risk. Like right. you knew enough of the other things here. Mm-hmm. If we had chosen like, well, I don't know, we're just going to write it and go. Like, oh, we yeah. do not have a ton of experience here in Boston with Go. And that would have been a very different conversation. And that would have would have not made sense for us. Yes. One thing I do want to say real quick is that Scala is not a pretty language. Like aesthetically. Right. Yeah. And I want to just be upfront about that. Because... <laughs> It's important to be honest about these right. sort of things. But it's also like one of the things that really drew me to Ruby yes. was the eye to that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Like people would like to talk about code in terms of its aesthetics in the Ruby community. Yes. Like does this spark joy? We were largely led here by DHH, who right. came to Ruby for those reasons and then has since, for however many years now, been speaking the virtues of beauty and and language of that sort. Mm -hmm. And I definitely, I experienced the same thing. Like JavaScript similarly has a bit of, the syntax is more interesting. There's more shapes and squiggles and things. And I, I am never quite as happy with JavaScript code from an aesthetic and also from the implied organizational structure Mm -hmm. that that aesthetic, like the squint test, if you're familiar, the squint tests on Ruby can go (laughs) really nicely. And I believe the squint test is actually a very useful metric for code organization and how well we've structured and abstracted and et cetera. Well, I think with that, we have probably reached a good stopping point. That was a fun little arc Mm -hmm. of, in two weeks, you have already experienced so many of the things that are the inherent sort of fundamental questions that we we work on here at ThoughtBot. Mm. So thank you for sharing your journey. Oh, you're welcome. I like to talk. (laughs) We can do this more. We like to listen. So (laughs) awesome, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter, or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.